Morning, second service. How's everybody doing? We got a packed house this morning. I always feel bad. People come all excited, come into the, they walk in the sanctuary doors, and then 30 seconds later, they're walking back out. It's like they've been kicked out of church and they have to go upstairs. So let's wave to everybody upstairs. It is great to have you guys with us. It's great to have all of our live streamers. Let's wave to our live streamers. Uh, happy Sunday to all of you guys. It is great to have you. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. Uh, these good-looking ushers will hand them out to you. And if you need a pen, hold up a couple fingers. They'll get that to you as well. All righty. Well, this morning, I've got a lot to uh, share with you. And this morning, I've, it's, it's going to be a lot of stuff that I'm just going to be running right down the line. I don't have any little funny stories or little great jokes to share this morning. So I'm going to need your attention to stay with me. So if you didn't get coffee, go get it now. Uh, just if you see the guy next to you sleeping, jab him really good. And uh, let's, because what we're going to talk about today is super, super important. Okay, and it's, it's a key part to this series that we need to pay attention to. As you know, we started a series several weeks ago on piercing the darkness, and we've been using this visual to kind of help us see that, you know, we are to be a lighthouse in this dark world, that God's light is meant to shine through us in such a way that it pierces the darkness and we rescue people into the kingdom of light. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got this email from Josh Keepman, who happens to be our drummer this morning. Um, and he says, Luke, he says, I created this little visual aid for me that I put up in my office that helps me just kind of remember what we talked about. And it's just kind of how the lighthouse is the center of, of our entire kingdom. And, it, and if we're going to shine brightly, we got to shine from the very center of who we are. Uh, the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. And so I appreciate Josh putting that together. I'm going to print that out and hang it in my uh, church office and my home office because I think it's a great reminder. Okay, today uh, we're going to be talking once again about the Great Commission. I know we spent a week talking about how the church as a whole has not really been fulfilling the Great Commission. Instead, it has kind of come up with its own plan. And today we're going to kind of, in a sense, carry on that same conversation. Because as a church here at Wystone, it is imperative that we follow Jesus' plan and not our own. Okay? Or, or not someone else's. We have to follow Jesus's because Jesus knows best. So to begin with, why don't we all kind of turn that way and let's read the, the Great Commission out loud together. You ready? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the key phrase that I want you to focus on there is go and make disciples. Okay, now we spent some time already talking about that word go and what it means. Um, it can mean, you know, as you go or while you go throughout the circles of your influence, we are to be making disciples. So we need to talk about what does it mean to make disciples? Okay, what is the point? Why are we making disciples? Why does Jesus tell us to make disciples? Why is it so important and, and necessary? And to answer these questions, we're going to kind of have to back up in recent history and look at how the church as a whole has kind of stepped away from this command of Jesus. And, and when I say recent history, I'm kind of talking about the last hundred years, and especially here in America. Now, I'm sure it's happened sooner and in other places, but I'm really focusing what you know here in America. 
we're going to see how the church has backed away from this command, and maybe we'll even get to see why it has and the consequences of that, you know, that occurred because of it. All right, so what has the church done with that phrase, go make disciples? How's the church tweaked it and kind of since changed it up? Well, let me show you. Here's what the church has done with it. The church has been focusing on making converts rather than making disciples. Church has really been focusing hard on converting as many people as possible to Christianity, okay? The focus has been converts, making converts. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what technically is a convert? What is, you know, what does it look like? Well, here's the definition of a convert. A convert is a person who's been persuaded to change one's religious faith or other beliefs. Okay, that's a convert. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, what's the big deal, Luke? I mean, what's so wrong with that? If we convert someone from a pagan religion or a cult or some wrong belief system, why is it so bad to have something like a convert, okay? Well, I'm not going to say that having a convert is a bad thing. I'm just going to say that it's a very insufficient thing. Jesus didn't say, go make converts. He said, make disciples. And let me tell you, Second Service, it is a big difference between the two. Let me show you the difference if I can this morning. To begin with, I just want to give you my definition of what a disciple is. Okay, here's a disciple so we can compare compare the two. A disciple is a person who trusts that Jesus is who he says he is. And, And he or she spends time with Jesus in order to learn how to live his or her own life the way Jesus would live it. And they rearrange their life in order to keep doing it. Now, I know that's a lot of words, but actually it's really hard to define a disciple in one simple statement. And these three statements, in my opinion, very much describe what a disciple is. A disciple does all these things. But I get it. It's a long answer. That would be hard to memorize. And you might be saying, well, it's not right to use three sentences as a definition. Okay. If you're going to force me to define disciple with one word, here's the word that I would use. Apprentice. And the reason that I like apprentice is it it involves action. An apprentice is someone who has decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Like, for instance, do we have anyone in here who was once an apprentice? Raise your hand. Okay, we got a bunch of it. What was your craft? Carpentry. Carpentry. What was your craft? Somebody raised their hand over there. Operating Operating engineer. Anybody else? HVAC. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Who did you learn from? Was it like a, would you call him a master? Master, who would you learn from? Journeyman, who would you learn from? Journeyman, okay. So the the point I'm trying to get is an apprentice learns from somebody else to do the things that they're doing, okay? And a lot of times they'll use that word master. Well, that's essentially what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus is an apprentice of Jesus. Jesus is the master or the journeyman, if you want to say, and we learn from him to become like him, okay? Well, Jesus has commanded us to go make people like that, okay? To make disciples, not converts. Because as I said, there's a big difference. We're going to look at a few differences this morning. Here's the first one. A convert believes in what Jesus did. A disciple believes in Jesus. We're going to talk about this more next week, but often the gospel that is presented to someone in this kind of situation is this. 
Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and you will be saved. You need to believe that he died on the cross for your sins. You're a sinner and therefore he had to die for you. If you believe that, you are saved. And what they mean by saved is you get to go to heaven when you die. Okay? Now, if you notice, what the convert is putting his or her trust in is something Jesus did. His death on the cross. Not necessarily Jesus. Now, I know that seems like I'm quibbling over nothing, but I am not. There's a big difference in believing what Jesus did versus believing in Jesus. And I think what a convert's they've been taught to do is they just zoom in on the cross and what Jesus did, and this is what they focus on. This is the extent of their belief system, what Jesus did on the cross. Now, if we were to show this entire wall being the entirety of Jesus, a disciple looks at all of it and says, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his teachings and his commands and his life. And also, by the way, what he did on the cross. There's a big difference between those two. Here's another difference. A convert professes belief in Jesus. A disciple believes in Jesus. Once again, seems like I'm quibbling over nothing. I am not. Profession of belief is much different than belief. Belief puts us into action. It, it makes contact with reality, if you will. If we believe something, we will act out as if it were true. Professing to believe something doesn't necessarily affect your belief system. People will always act out and live out what their belief system is, but very rarely will people live out what they profess. Often in churches, I would hear pastors say, praise God, we had four professions of faith last week. And we would all clap our hands and we would celebrate and say, that's awesome. However, a profession of faith doesn't necessarily mean belief in Jesus. It may, but it also may not. Some of these people who profess their faith may choose to believe in Jesus, but you'd be amazed at how many do not. It's simply a profession. To a convert, a profession is the focus. It's not the life. As long as they profess something in the right way or they gave the right answers to the right questions, they're good to go. The profession is the key focus. And very often, a profession does not affect a life. To a disciple, the life is what's the focus. To believe in Jesus will drastically affect a life. Let's keep going following that same line of thinking. A convert puts his faith in a ritual, whether it be praying a specific prayer or an altar call or whatever it may be. Disciple puts his faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to be talking about this more next week, but churches will often focus on making the transaction with someone to make them a convert. That's often getting them to pray a prayer. And often at churches, what we will call that is after a sermon, we call everybody forward. You know, those who want to pray the prayer, you come, and it's called an altar call, okay? And people will come and bow down before the stage. Now, the pastor will then lead them through a prayer, okay? Now, this prayer may or may not, and they often call it the salvation prayer. This prayer may or may not be a good prayer. It may or may not have the correct theology in it. But often, the focus on prayer is preeminent. It's what seals the deal. It completes the transaction. 
If we can get them to pray the prayer, we will often tell them, hey, buddy, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, welcome to the family. Because you prayed that prayer, you're part of the family of God. In other words, we communicate to them after the prayer that they are now a Christian. And so to them, it was the prayer that did it. And so often, a convert will put their faith in that prayer or that altar call, whatever ritual they did. And people will ask them, so, Johnny, you a Christian? You better believe I am. August 3rd, 2003, uh, pastor had an altar call, and I went forward, and that's when I, I prayed the prayer. So, yeah, I'm in. Or I was at a basketball camp, and, and a guy led us in a prayer after the camp, and I prayed that prayer, too. And that, for many, is the transaction that was made for them to become a Christian. And a, con a convert will often place their faith in that action or that ritual. Well, a disciple doesn't put his or her faith in any of that. They put their faith in who? Jesus. It is Jesus who saves them, not a prayer. Once again, you may be thinking, I'm quibbling over something not that big. I believe it's huge. All you have to do is look around the churches today in America and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let me mention another difference. And honestly, I think I could go on and on with all these differences between a convert and a disciple, but I don't think I need to. Hopefully you're seeing what I'm trying to convey. But here's another difference. A convert needs to constantly recommit himself or herself. A disciple, the commitment flows out of the belief. Over and over, either at altar calls or at camps or at youth groups or retreats, you will see altar calls being made to people to come up and pray the prayer of salvation. Now, once people quit coming forward, what the pastor will often do is he'll switch it around and say, now, is there anybody, any of you that need to recommit themselves to the Lord? Almost like they need to renew the transaction. They need to reset or recommit. This happens all the time. And I know you may not see it here at Wystone, but it happens many times in, in a lot of Christian circles. You see, if you just profess something, you just profess your belief in Jesus, but you don't really believe in him, nothing will really change. I can't tell you how many people have done exactly that. And often what happens is that these kind of people will over and over and over recommit themselves to what they professed. Many times people will come forward to another altar call and they'll pray the prayer again just in case they got, the, got it wrong the first time or the second time. They want to get it right, so they recommit themselves. Whereas for a disciple, because they believe in Jesus, their commitment flows right out of that. They don't need to recommit because they so believe Jesus is who he says he is and that he's right about everything. They want to follow him and their commitment flows from that. A disciple chooses every day to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Jesus. To apprentice themselves after him. Belief in Jesus is the force that drives that. Now, at this point, if you've grown up in a church and in Christianity, this is probably starting to resonate a bit. You've probably seen this play out with many people, maybe even yourself. I will admit, I have certainly experienced this in my own life. I can't tell you how many times I prayed that prayer. I can't tell you how many times I had to recommit myself. And why? Because I was a convert. I wasn't a disciple. But that's what the church taught me. 
It wasn't until I understood discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus did I see the difference, and the difference that it makes is truly life-changing. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, look, how did this happen? I mean, why does the church make converts instead of disciples? Where, where did we go wrong? Well, I've done a lot of thinking on this, and I may be completely wrong with this, but this is my logical explanation as to how we ended up here, okay? You, at the end of the sermon, you can decide whether I'm on or not. But let me try to explain. This last century in America was a very tumultuous century. I mean, it was 100 years of craziness. We had World War I. We had the Great Depression. We had World War II. We had, a lot of Christians thought Hitler was the Antichrist. We had Korean War. We had the Vietnam War. There was the Cold War where Russia was promising to wipe USA off the face of the earth. Um, we had the craziness of the 70s. We had huge earthquakes in California. We had exploding Mount St. Helens, a volcano there. We had bad hair in the 80s. Uh, and then the century ended with the Y2K. Remember that? How many remember the Y2K? Yep. I mean, the last century was brutal for people. And because it was so bad, what started to happen is that throughout the century, people started to think Jesus was going to return at any second. They would read passages where it would say the creation groans in expectation. In other words, we see these earthquakes and these volcanoes and it's groaning. They would read passages like Matthew where it says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you aren't alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places like California, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. And Christian leaders and pastors and famous speakers started predicting that Jesus was very most likely going to return in that century because of these wars and rumors of wars and all that was happening. This was a very common message being preached and told from the pulpits across America and the world, and there's a lot of books written about it. So time was short. We had better get a move on it. It was being taught that we need to reach as many people for Christ as possible. We need to get as many people into heaven as possible so they won't end up in hell. So, and this is my opinion, discipleship or making disciples was set aside for the sake of time so that as many people as possible could be reached before Christ returned. And all sorts of tactics were created. Tracts were handed out, evangelism classes were cru or crusades were held, famous speakers, they traveled the land to reach as many people for Christ. People were told to bring as many of their non-Christian friends to church or to these crusades as possible to reach them for Christ. If you could get your friend there, the preacher would do the rest. He would make the transaction of getting them to become a convert. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, that's where we, we see suddenly reaching people for Christ became the work of a professional, the pastor and the missionary. And at the end of these sermons, end of the crusades, end of the tracts, people were encouraged to profess their belief in what Jesus did for them on the cross and pray a prayer. And if they prayed that prayer, they were told they were going to heaven when they died. One more was rescued from hell. And suddenly, without knowing it, the church began to promote a gospel of believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and you will go to heaven when you die. Now, that sounds great, but that isn't the gospel Jesus preached. We're going to talk about this more next week. 
But unfortunately, that is the gospel that became the resounding cry from the pulpits. And so, to be rescued from hell, people would come up and pray the prayer. At which point, they were told that now that they were Christians in the family of God, going to heaven when they die, they had their fire insurance. And then they were told to go plug into a church body to be able to mature. Or they'd be told, now you need to be discipled. Now that you're a convert, discipleship comes next. So think about that. Convert, step one. Disciple, step two. Once again, clearly that's not what Jesus taught. If you look at the Great Commission, what's step one? Make disciples. Step two, baptize them into the name of the Trinitarian God. Step three, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Making a convert is nowhere mentioned in the Great Commission. See the difference? Ponder this for a second. Because you can see the brilliance of Jesus' plan when you just think about this. A disciple is obviously a convert. But a convert may or may not ever become a disciple. You make a disciple, conversion takes care of itself. You make a convert, becoming a disciple may or may not happen. And many times it doesn't. But that's the plan churches have promoted. Make converts first and then disciple them. But here's the problem with that. New converts would start attending churches, for the most part, because they, they you know, were told they would get discipled, they would mature, and that was what they were told to do. But they would go to these churches, and guess what every sermon was about? Trying to lead people to salvation. Having altar calls, pray the prayer, and sing just as I am seven times. So week after week, that was the kind of sermons that they would hear. And these pastors were really good at preaching these hell, fire, and brimstone sermons to where people would start to question if they prayed the prayer right or not. And at the end of every sermon, Sunday, on Sundays, people would feel guilty again. And like I mentioned earlier, sometimes people would go up multiple times because they would doubt their salvation. And often because they were just converts and not disciples, often their lives didn't look or feel any different. And they wondered, did I, did I pray the prayer right? Did I use the right words? And so they would try again. The focus was on the profession, the ritual, the words that they said. And that's what churches did every week. The teachings of churches never really focused on spiritual maturity or how to become like Jesus or or like it says in the Great Commission, it never taught them how to obey the commands of Jesus. That wasn't talked about. It was only had to do with leading people to Christ sermon after sermon. Get as many people into heaven as possible. So as I mentioned before, churches became very, very immature. Churches were full of converts. Full of people who professed their faith. To be able to get out of going to hell. But growth in character never happened. And pastors just kept preaching and preaching the salvation gospel, and the problem just kept perpetuating itself. Now, as bad as that sounds, it even gets worse in my opinion. Many pastors realize, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that, you know, it's more than just my job to reach people for Christ. It should be the job of every Christian. We could rescue way more people if we teach every Christian how to do this. So they developed evangelism classes to teach the average Christian how to 
talk to other non-Christians and seal the deal with them. They were taught certain skills, and they were taught packaged ways to evangelize to the people on the streets or knocking on doors or wherever, the, you know, wherever people were. And these classes basically taught converts how to make other converts. It taught people how to handle certain arguments. It taught people how to sidestep debates. You name it, these classes basically taught you how to make the transaction of getting someone to pray the prayer. And often, they were packaged presentations to be able to do it in a 10 to 15 minute presentation because you didn't know how long you had with that person. I remember being in these classes and we would sit down across from each other and we would practice. We would do mock conversations where, okay, you be the non-Christian this time. I'll be the Christian. And we would try to throw back, you know, like, well, I don't believe this. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe that. And we'd try to practice back and forth to be able to get good when we go into the streets. And we had a five-minute gospel all laid out and we had to memorize it so we could be good at presenting it. And then we'd go to the streets and we'd come up to people and we'd say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you for a few minutes? And they'd be like, yeah, you weirdo, what's this about? And so you'd say like, hey man, if, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And they would, you know, go to the answer. And then you're like, well, that's a really, that's great that you say that, but let me tell you something, man has a problem, you have a problem, you have sinned, and the penalty of sin is death. So you're going to have to die for your sin, buddy. That's just the way it is. But I tell you, God has given a solution. He has sent his son, and his son died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. That is God's solution. But now you have a responsibility. And that re responsibility is to believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, and then you will be saved. It's a gift. It's being offered to you. Are you going to take it? It isn't yours until you take it. And then we'd share a little story about, you imagine you're drowning out in the ocean and a boat comes up and says, are you drowning? You go, yeah. So you throw a lifesaver out to that person. Um, when, when are you saved? When you actually reach out and grab that lifesaver. So we tell the person, listen, this gift is not yours until you take it. So are you gonna take it? And they're like, yeah, I'd like to take it. Well, pray this prayer with me. And then they might say, well, I don't know if I wanna take it. I'm like, well, if you don't take it, you go to hell. So guess what people would do? Well, I just want to cover all my bases. If I pray the prayer, I go to heaven. If I don't pray the prayer, I go to hell. You know, what the heck? Let's just pray the prayer and cover all my bases. You guys, I've talked so many people into praying the prayer. And Christians gave out tracts with all sorts of illustrations on them. Remember the illustration of here's God and there's a cliff, here's man, there's a cliff, and in the middle is this fire, burning fires of hell. And that cross came flipping down and crossed the other cross, and you walked across on the death of Jesus, and that's how you made it to God. Now, all these things may be great things, but it wasn't the gospel Jesus preached. We're going to cover this more in detail next week, so if you have any questions or concerns about what I'm saying, save it for next week. <laughs> but unfortunately, all this did was teach people how to present a faulty gospel, which just repeated the process. Convince people to opt out of hell and choose heaven by professing their belief in Christ's death through a prayer, and boom, they were in. So here we had loads of people becoming Christians who really didn't live like Christians because they didn't even really know what living like a Christian meant or what it entailed. They were just told that to believe Jesus died on the cross for them but not necessarily told to believe in Jesus. So, unfortunately, the title Christian had lost, lost its value in the world. A Christian simply looked like any other person of the world. 
They just happened to be forgiven. Not much interchange happened in the life of a believer. They just lived like the rest of the world, but like I said, they were forgiven. The world wasn't. They had taken the gift. And they were eternally secure. And as long as they prayed that prayer and they believed that Jesus died on the cross for them, they believed they were eternally secure, going to heaven no matter how they lived. That is what they clung to. So that created another issue. Another problem began to develop as well in churches. Christians were being told that they needed to be different from the world and live good lives. But because Christians didn't experience much interchange, and if they're going to be honest, their lives really weren't all that different, what they had to do is they had to learn how to fake it. And so many Christians resorted to something called performance-based spirituality. Meaning, not much changed on the inside, but they worked really hard to change the outside. Because as long as the outside looked good, they were considered spiritual or mature. So it forced people who attended church to, at least on Sundays, put on a good show. The rest of the week, they could live like the world, but at church, around other Christians, they had to look good to the other churchgoers. So on Sundays, you had a building full of people pretending in front of each other. If you did good at it, you were accepted and you were held in high regard. If you didn't, you weren't. And that's why I talk about how churches have this holy asphalt on their parking lot. You've heard me say this many times. You know, people will drive to church like, I gotta go to church, and they're screaming at their wife, they're yelling at their kids, they're cussing up a storm, they've, they've been terrible all week, and they pull onto that parking lot, it's like, and they are transformed into this amazing godly person. They step out and they're like, how you doing, brother? Praise the Lord. All right, let's worship the Lord. Shout to the Lord. And then they, hallelujah. And it says the rest of the day, as soon as they get in that car, they, they drive off the parking lot and back to the normal selves. The church told people they had to act a certain way. And that created a mess in church. It created fakery. It created legalism. It created a mess. It taught people they had to act different, but never taught them how to do it. Never equipped them with the needed help to actually live like Jesus. In other words, they were never discipled. And listen to me. When someone doesn't become a disciple of Jesus, it's impossible to become like Jesus. Well, eventually these people, not able to live up to this level, feeling judged and ridiculed and attacked by the Christian world, they ended up wanting nothing to do with it. And they would abandon Christianity altogether. I can't tell you how many multitudes of people have left churches because they had no idea how to live a holy, righteous life, and because they couldn't fake it good enough, they just left the church entirely. Many of us know people like that. To them, Christianity is a farce. It's a weak religion that doesn't change a person one bit. And it's all because a church chose to make converts and not disciples. Now, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer this morning. You're like, well, Luke, if you're not trying, you're doing a really good job at it. <laughs> but I'm stating something that is a glaring problem in the church today. It's a huge problem. It's been a huge problem in our church. It is an uphill battle to fight against this. Let me ask you something. If the church across America is filled with this kind of people, how much power do you think that church experiences? 
How much supernatural power does a church manifest? How much holiness does it truly live out? How many little Jesuses enter and exit through the building and then go out into the world and shine his light? Not much and not many. If you make converts and not disciples, you are left with a weak, powerless church. Only disciples of Jesus end up living like Jesus and experiencing the power of Jesus. And that, my friends, is why Jesus tells us to make disciples and not converts. We need to get back to what Jesus has told us to do in the first place. Now, why do I bring all this up? Simple. Our mission here at Wystone is this, to make what? Disciples. Disciples who understand, who live, and who extend the kingdom of God. Not converts, disciples. We want to make disciples who understand the message of the kingdom of God, who live out the kingdom of God, and then go out into this world and extend the kingdom of God. We want to follow the commands of Jesus. We don't just want to follow the method the church has been following for decades. And I'm saying this because when I'm telling you to go out and to shine the light of Jesus in the circles of your kingdom, the purpose of doing that is to make disciples in those circles. People who trust that Jesus is who he says he is. People that spend time with Jesus in order to live their own life as if Jesus would live it. And people who will rearrange their life in order to keep doing it. That's what we're to be doing in our circles of influence. That's the kind of people we're to be making. Now, that takes a plan. It takes work. It takes time. It takes learning how to do it. And that's what we plan on focusing on in these next weeks leading up to the Resurrection Sunday, okay? So why so let's learn together from our master and let's go out and let's make disciples in this world. Let's shine the light of Jesus everywhere we go, amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you so much for your word and I thank you that we literally get to read the words of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for setting those words aside and going about a different plan, coming up with a different principle to live by. God, we accept the fact that if we're not gonna listen to your words, we have to accept the consequences of that. But God, I pray that you would give us the strength, the power, and that you would equip us to live out these words, that we might become people who make disciples in every circle of our influence. I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our master. Amen. Guys, love you very, very much. Have an amazing week, and make sure you're here next week to hear the next sermon, okay? That's when all the questions are coming.